I'm Dr. Derek Cohen, and this is the Foundation Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this, the week of March 22nd. Last week, there were some big moves in the legislature, including the Senate passing their repricing vehicle. We spoke with Vance Ginn about this policy matter last week, so we invite you to check out that episode. Also last week, juvenile justice and family issues heard HB 193, a bill supported by conservatives, liberal activists, and law enforcement that allows for the expunction of records for juvenile victims of sex trafficking. Over in House Criminal Jurisprudence, the committee heard lengthy discussion of four forfeiture bills designed to curtail the practice. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, SB 252 was heard in local government. This would prevent taxpayers from being on the hook for the storage and handling of certain private property. In elections, the committee heard HB 25, which prevents county elections officials from sending out unsolicited mail-in ballots. Finally, SB 21 was heard in Senate jurisprudence on the issue of bail reform. Both a priority for the governor and lieutenant governor, the question, bail in Texas should be based only on a person's danger to society and risk of flight, not that person's ability to pay, received 95% of the vote on the 2020 Republican primary ballot. This, on top of continuing issues in metropolitan counties, there have been several proposed solutions to fix the problem. We will have a guest on a later episode to discuss this topic as well. This week, juvenile justice and family issues will be hearing various raise the age bills. Under current Texas law, 17-year-olds are considered adults. This becomes a problem when contrasted with federal law, which considers them juveniles, leaving them in this bizarre age gap where they are treated as a category unto themselves. In Human Services, HB 2374 would require a regular efficiency audit of DFPS to determine if taxpayer dollars spent by the department are actually achieving the goals of helping families in the most effective way. Joining us today is healthcare guru David Blatt. David, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Derek. Well, you tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, you know, I've always been uh, in the healthcare industry. I started working in the hospitals when I was 16 years old, worked my way through college, um, decided I wanted to go the administrative route. And, and that was my career for nearly 20 years. I was a hospital executive and CEO and uh, worked with hospitals that were financially troubled um, in rural communities, um, uh, county hospitals, you name it, throughout Texas and Southern Louisiana. I was uh, leading those uh, those types of organizations through troubled times and getting them healthy and back on their feet. So the bill filing deadline has passed, and there are many great and not so great health care bills uh, before the legislature at the moment. But as with so many other areas, most folks just have a cursory understanding of the policy question. So let's discuss some of the big ones. First, licensure reciprocity. What needs correcting and how do we do it? Well, you know, we, we saw during the COVID emergency uh, declarations, the governor said, look, if you're a doctor in another state and you, your, your license is in good standing, come work in Texas, uh, whether it be telemedicine or actually coming into the state. Any policy that brings doctors and patients closer together and improves health care, uh, you, you wonder why there was any opposition to it in the first place. So, uh, that's that's what this these bills are, are trying to do. It's trying to say, look, if if you are licensed in a state with where the criteria for your licensure is substantively equivalent to that of Texas, and you're in good standing in your state, come work in our state. 
Uh, we'd love to have you if you're so inclined, if you want to work in Oklahoma and Texas, which I, I know that there are some doctors that live right there on the border and like would like to, to be in both states, uh, then by all means, you know, we have a physician shortage in the state. So uh, we need all the help that we can get. Now, you mentioned telemedicine. Uh, that's obviously been a priority item, both for the governor and lieutenant governor. So what's the state of play in telemedicine and what do we see being done up at the legislature? Well, let's talk about what telemedicine is. Telemedicine is being able to to communicate with your physician uh, predominantly ver, uh, via a video means, like a FaceTime, but it's it's technically a, a little bit more uh, involved than that. But even during the emergency, you could use a FaceTime, you could use a Skype or, or a Zoom, and that was uh, what was being done. That's great for people that don't have uh, uh, accessible or ac- you know quick access to a doctor. Uh, especially in your rural areas. But what else does it mean? It could also mean uh, an audio only because, you know, we have uh, an issue with certain parts of Texas that don't have access to broadband. And and the governor has talked about increasing uh, access to broadband and really uh, building that up. And that's, I think that's a great move. But what do you do in the meantime for, for people that only have access to a phone call? And uh, that, I think that that is, that would be important to, uh, uh, to have considered as a part of telemedicine because is is it great care? Probably not the best, but it's better than no care at all. And you, I know, have been vocal on the issue of price transparency, both here in the state and, you know, before Congress. Right. So price transparency, can you kind of explain what the question about transparency is? It seems like such a common sense approach to have these prices publicly available I was shocked to find out that not only is that the case, but there are groups that are actively working against that. Why is that uh, the state? Well, various groups have various reasons for wanting to be opposed to it. Uh, Some conservative groups are are not opposed to it because they said it, you know, there shouldn't be a government mandate for organizations to disclose their pricing. Well, there's no way to have a free market if you don't have a price. It's the very first step, and Milton Friedman has come out and, and said that again and again. Uh, so again, you, we have no free market, and we have no bar- market-based forces in healthcare, uh, and especially if you don't have the prices. The hospitals are opposed to it because, uh, frankly, they they stand to do much better financially if they keep all those prices in the dark. Um, they'd rather you didn't know because if you did, you could you could shop. Uh, for the 80% of healthcare that is shoppable, I'm not talking about emergent or urgent care, I'm talking about things that could be scheduled, uh, that it would impact them financially. Okay, but give us a real world example of how somebody could shop for services. All right, it's easy to do. So if I'm a patient, and let's just say I have um, a plan like Aetna, and I want to go to uh, a hospital and get a CAT scan, and both hospitals in my town are on Aetna, they're in network. Okay. With transparency, I would be able to see what the negotiated rate with, with that would be. Uh, so if one hospital who happens to be part of a big system that has been able to use their market power to negotiate better rates, their CAT scans $2,000. And this hospital over here is just a one-off hospital. They're on their own. They were only able to negotiate a $1,000 uh, negotiated rate for, for the CAT scan. If I'm a patient and my deductible is $5,000, where am I going to go? I'm going to go to the one that saves me $1,000 or costs me $1,000 because at this point, 
my eyes have been opened to what the price is. And, and so you bring up the issue of cost. You know, we have these cost-sharing organizations. I, I, for one, am one of the folks who looks at that and, you know, kind of confuses that with other uh, entities that exist in the healthcare space. Can you describe to our listeners what these cost-sharing orgs are and how they're being addressed in the legislature? Sure. Uh, if you're familiar with how a, a Christian sharing ministry works, these are, are uh, secular organizations that function the exact same way. So uh, the bill that uh, is currently, well, actually there are three uh, dealing with cost-sharing organizations. It really is, is providing consumer protections for patients that uh, are, are dealing with these cost-sharing organizations. And it also gives a safe harbor to the secular ones that the Christian sharing ministries currently enjoy. So it, it's, it's creating an even playing field uh, and, and incentivizing um, groups that, that want to provide a good service to come into the market and provide competition and make healthcare affordable. Well, since we're going a little farther afield here, and I hope you'll per, uh, pardon the deliberate pun, I noticed a bill that's been filed that looks to deal with insurance through the Farm Bureau. This does not necessarily make sense superficially. Can you explain that particular sure. item that's, of legislation? That's actually an exciting development. So uh, there are four other states, uh, Tennessee, Iowa, Kansas, and South Dakota, that have allowed their farm bureaus to uh, provide health benefits. And the, the, the uniqueness of this is that they can provide health benefits without being regulated by their departments of insurance. Well, what does that mean? It means that because the state doesn't recognize them as insurance and they're selling health benefits, they are no longer under the auspices or, or the regulatory authority of the ACA which means that they can offer unique, flexible types of insurance the way that we understood insurance prior to the ACA. I want to ask two questions about prescriptions specifically. So first we have, uh, I'd say over in the house, we have HB 18, the Texas CARES Act. Can you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, also very um, uh, innovative and, and, and unique way to deliver affordable drugs for the uninsured of Texas. Uh, it's, it's dubbed the Texas CARES Act. So we're, we're using the, the market strength of, of our state to provide a formulary uh, where we can get medications at an affordable rate for people who are uninsured and focusing primarily on epinephrine, EpiPens, and insulin. Uh, we, it could be expanded to other forms of medications, but we're starting with those. And those are the ones that are um, uh, highlighted and, and focused on initially. And then finally, the physicians dispense legislation. What exactly is that? Now, I mean, I understand the traditional model where you have a prescribing doctor and a pharmacist, and I cursorily see the advantage of that model, but what are we talking about here? Sure. Well, you know, Texas is one of four states that does not allow physicians to sell medications in their office. So patients at the point of care aren't able to buy drugs from, from their doctor um, if they wanted to. So that's, that's something that we're trying to reverse. A lot of the, the, uh, the opponents would say, well, it's, it's just not safe. It's safer through a pharmacist. Well, there have been a number of studies that have shown that that's just not the case. And in fact, uh, adherence to medications 
uh, might even be better with a physician. Now, are physicians able, you know, should they be able to do this or are they able to do this in their training? Well, they currently already do it. They can hand out samples. They give out free medications. They just can't sell it. Um, so it's, it's, it's an odd um, uh, fact that, that, that they can't. Um, the, the other real benefit from my perspective is uh, this is, this would be on a cash basis. So the physicians can buy it wholesale and basically sell for a small, uh, small margin, but basically at cost. And the, the cost of the drugs would be pennies a pill. It'd be substantially lower. You know, the irony of, of, of the healthcare industry is that things tend to cost more money when you use your insurance. And so bypassing the insurance and the PBMs and, and all of these other middlemen will allow patients to, to purchase these maintenance medications at a much lower rate. Well, excellent, David. I appreciate you taking time and joining us here today. That's yeah, been fun. Anytime. Excellent.